So I realize this as I introduce this series and I say part 11 of 90, that it sounds like it's going to be a really long, long, long series. Uh, it's actually not a long series. But we're at, well, it's long for us, but we're wrapping up the series in two weeks on Easter. We've been walking through the, the life of Jesus. We've taken about 12 weeks to walk through the time that Jesus was introduced to the world on the, the, the banks of the Jordan River before he was baptized up until he gives his life to be the savior of the world. But one of the really cool things that we're going to talk about this morning is Jesus, he, he, took, he took a bunch of rules and, and, and he, he like narrowed it down to two rules. And I, I don't know if you've ever done this at home. I, I do this with my kids. I'm not a, a really good rule follower to begin with. So when we had kids and my wife and I talked, I thought, I, I can't make a bunch of rules because I can't follow a bunch of rules. Let's make two. So we made two rules for our girls. And that's, that's this. First one is don't lie. Always be honest because when you lie, you break a relationship and we don't break relationships. And I hate lying. Uh, and then the second would be honor your mom. I knew my girls would honor me. I have no problem being like the iron fist and making them honor me. But if they would honor their mom, to me, that was the win. Because if they honor their mom, they honor me, we're good. So we made two rules. Jesus t- took this, this entire like, scope of rules, this huge bunch of rules, and he narrows it down to two things. And then he even takes it a step farther than that and just, he really shocks everyone. And it's something that a lot of people miss. When we go through the life of Jesus, we see that he, he does this, this incredible thing. He, he constantly is looking back on things, and, and he, he says things like this, like, you've heard it said before, but I say, and you've heard it say before, but I say. And all of his followers, they know what he's talking about. They're like, yeah, my, my parents said that, and their parents said that, and that's because that's what Moses taught us. And then it's almost like you're saying, like, like you're better than Moses, and, and I, I don't under, like, Jesus, who do you think you are? And I imagine Jesus just kind of looked back at his followers and smiled and said, just wait. He would say radical things. He, he, he would say things like, like the, the greatest in the kingdom, the person who should, who's first, needs to be last. And it's like, well, that's not how leaders lead. What, what kind of leadership is that? That's what servants do. And Jesus introduced the world to servant leadership. He, he, he would say things like, like, I'm better than the temple. And when he says he's better than the temple, it just, it stirred all the religious people crazy because that was their religious system. And if you're better than the temple, then we don't need the temple. And if we don't need the temple, then what are we going to get, Jesus? Like, like, how do we, what is our new religious system? And he's constantly turning the world upside down, turning the world on a dime, changing things, making these radical statements. And and his his followers, his disciples, they're they're constantly kind of tossed back and forth. And as you read through it, they're not really keeping up with these these hints and these breadcrumbs that Jesus leaves throughout his life and throughout his ministry. And this takes us up to um, a a very certain point in time where Jesus gathers his, his disciples together. He, he goes to have Passover with his disciples. This is what we've been talking about the last few weeks. He gather, gathers his, his troops together, his disciples, and they make their way into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover together. And the religious leaders heard that Jesus was coming to celebrate Passover. So they put spies all around the city, everywhere. The text tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. And it turns out that finding Jesus was very easy. But being able to arrest him was really difficult because everywhere he went, large crowds of people followed him. People followed him everywhere. The great crowd, it says in John, the great crowd that had come for the festival, from the, for the Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And intensity built, and, and, and emotion built, and excitement, it, it all began to build around this event that Jesus was making his way into the city, possibly to do something brand new for the nation of Israel. And what everyone missed was he was going into the city to do something brand new. But it wasn't for the nation of Israel. It was for you. And it was for me. And it was for the entire world. And then something unusual happened. One of his closest followers, a guy named Judas, he, he decides to kind of break ranks. 
You see, Judas, I think, he begins to put the pieces together. He hears all these things that Jesus is saying, and it's not kind of lining up with going into Jerusalem and the Messiah becoming the Messiah and setting up his kingdom and taking over his rule. Judas begins to put the pieces together. and He's like, you know, I don't think, I don't think we're going into Jerusalem for Jesus to be the Messiah. I think we're going to go into Jerusalem, and it's sounding more and more like Jesus is going to sacrifice himself, like he's going to surrender. This whole, like, like the first shall be last and the greatest will give up his life. Like, like I, I'm feeling like Jesus isn't here to, to, to take over. He's almost here to give up. And if this is what I've sold my life out to, this new thing that Jesus is doing, and it's about to end, I'm getting out. And not only am I getting out, but I'm getting something with it. And Jesus tells, or rather Judas tells Jesus and, and the followers, the, the disciples, that he has an errand to run. And he goes off and he finds the Pharisees. And he tells the Pharisees, hey, if you want Jesus, I can give you Jesus. And if you want him away from the crowd, I'll give, you to, I'll give him to you away from the crowd. The text actually says this. It says, he watched, this is Judas, he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them, to the Pharisees, when no crowd was present. And in the end, their plan succeeded, but their objective failed. Because unlike the world, unlike me, maybe unlike you, Jesus didn't cling to his life. Jesus wasn't there to save his life. His intention from the very beginning was to give it up. And through him giving up his life, be the savior of the world. But before he did that, he had two things to do. This week we're going to talk about one of them. As, as first they gathered uh, the, his guys together for the Passover, Brian talked to us about this last week. They're eating this Passover meal where they, where they celebrate what happened thousands of years ago in the nation of Israel. In the nation of Israel, they were in captivity, or rather the nation of Egypt, they were in captivity, and then they're, they're released from the nation of Egypt. And before they're released, there was this whole Passover event that occurred. And for year and year and year and year, for thousands of years, they celebrate this. Jesus gathers his disciples together. He says, hey guys, I know you've done this before. You're good Jewish boys. You've done this every single year. Here's what I want you to do. The next time you do this meal, I don't want you to remember Moses. I don't want you to remember the, 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 the nation of Egypt. I don't want you to remember thousands of years ago. I want you to remember me. The, the next time you do this, when you get the bread, I want you to remember my broken body. You're going to be, Jesus, you're not, you're, you're not broken. Next time you do this and you drink from the cup, and you know the, the cup always represented the blood that we put on our doorpost for Passover, I want you to remember my blood that I'm going to use to seal this brand new covenant. This brand new covenant will be sealed in my blood. And when you do this from now on, you remember me. You remember my body. You remember my blood. You remember the new covenant I'm making. Not this situational covenant between God and a nation, but, but this, this predetermined covenant, this unshakable covenant, as Brian told us last week, it's a permanent, unilateral, unconditional covenant with God and all of mankind. It's a new relational kind of covenant. But like every kind of covenant, like every kind of contract, there's always the fine print, isn't there? I mean, even in contracts today, there's always, like, what's the fine print? There's always a fine print to it. And it's just the same way with this ancient covenant, with this covenant Jesus established. There's some fine print. There are new terms and new conditions to this covenant. These would replace the old terms and the old conditions to the old covenant. And the thing is, Jesus' closest followers should have known what was coming. They should have been able to see this because his entire life, he left breadcrumbs. He left a trail. He left signs pointing this way that something brand new was coming. And it was leaning this way the whole time. It was pointing in this direction. But even the men who were closest to him missed it. They didn't realize that Jesus wasn't here to be an and 
He was here to be an instead of. He was here to, to close what was and introduce something new. For example, um, months before, he gathered his disciples together to do Passover. About 10 to 11 months before, he gathered them all together. He's out and he's traveling through towns and he's teaching and he's, he's preaching. And every time he does, every time he teaches and he preaches, he, he, he kind of leaves open for a Q&A session. Right? He, he would talk to people, he would teach them about it, and then he would, he would answer questions. <clears throat> well, in this moment in particular, the Pharisees, they get together with the Sadducees and they decide they want to do something about Jesus. They're sick of people following him. They've got to kind of make him look bad. They want him to trip up in front of the crowd so that the crowd leaves him and then they could get to Jesus without the crowd and arrest him. The text tells us this. The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus with his words, but they didn't go themselves because they'd be recognized. So they sent their disciples to him instead. And they'd give these disciples very specific questions. they say, here's what we want you to do. We want you to go. We want you to blend in with the crowd. No one's going to notice you. Jesus will do his teaching. It'll get to the Q&A part. When it gets to the Q&A part, you slip up your hand. You stand up. You ask the question. And if you ask this question, this specific question, in this specific way, we're going to trip him up. You could be the guy that trips, trips up this crazy teacher, from this Nazarite teacher from Galilee. You could be the one that messes him up. So Jesus goes and he does his teaching as he always does, gets to the Q&A part. The guy stands up, says, teacher, teacher, they said, and they're kind of buttering him up. Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. But Jesus, unlike most people, you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. And now that they've got Jesus buttered up and they think like Jesus is leaning in and he's kind of soft, like, oh, well, thank, thank you so much. Of course, that's exactly how I am. Then they ask the question, they ask the zinger. They ask him this kind of IRS-based question. And Jesus answers their question with this incredible illustration of a coin, and he sends these guys running back to their masters, completely befuddled and bewildered and embarrassed. These, this Pharisee gets back to his group. and says, hey, This is what happened. I can't believe it. I made a mess. Sadducees are like, all right, it's our turn. We're sending our guy in. They get their guy, same thing, prep him. Here's the question. Wait for the Q&A. Jesus is, is going to do it. When he does, stand up, ask, ask the question. Jesus teaches, Q&A. Guy stands up. Guy asks the question, and this is what he says. Teacher, again, a little bit of flattery. They said, Mo, or, <clears throat> teacher, Moses told us. And now they're trying to pit Jesus against the people because Jesus was, was always, in their minds, in stark contrast to Moses, almost like he was here to refute Moses or go do away with Moses. He said, no, I'm just completing what Moses initiated and I'm doing something new, something better. But they would make it look like he was in opposition to Moses. Jesus, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow, his wife, and raise up offspring for her. Now, if you've ever been tempted to honor the Old Testament and go back to the old law, this should be reason enough not to do it. I mean, this was the verse. Like, you have a brother, he marries a woman, whether you like it or not, he dies, and then you're stuck marrying her. That was the law. That's what you had to do. Some of us don't like our in-laws. You have no choice. You, it doesn't matter how many wives you have at this point, because if, if this happened to other siblings, you can have multiple wives. You're taking in another wife, whether you like her or not, and you have to give her offspring. That was the law. And we hear this, and like, this is... This is crazy. This is stupid. Why would anyone want to do this? Why would anyone want to obey part of the law? Here, here, here's the, 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 the kind of the bad news of this if you want to do this. The Bible says if you obey any, the New Testament says, if you obey any of the Old Testament, any of the law, you've got to obey all of it. So if you do even part of it, you've got to do this. You've got to marry your brother's wife, the widow, and you've got to give her offspring. We think that sounds awful. This law was in place to protect women, though, because women were forgotten about in this society. 
When a woman married a man and the man died, if there were no children to take on his name and to care for her, she was literally left alone to die. She was left and she would go to the outside of society and she'd become a nobody and eventually she'd be forgotten about and die. So the way God put a, a law in place to protect her was this law. So the law was good. It was there to protect this woman. We look at it, it doesn't make much sense. But Sadducees, you, you know this is why they did this. You know Moses made this law, right, Jesus? O- okay, I'm with you. Now, they say, there were seven brothers among us. Now, they're making this up. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. A woman marries a man. He has seven brothers. The man dies. She marries the second man. He dies. She marries the third. He dies. She marries the fourth. He dies. She marries the fifth, the sixth, the seventh. They all die. The seventh dies. And then she dies. It's like, this is worst case scenario. This would never happen. But in their, in their riddle, it happens. And every time there's a riddle, there's always a question that leads at the end of it, right? There's always a question that comes. Now, after this, this disaster case scenario, after this is as bad as it could possibly be, here's the question they throw at Jesus. So when she gets to heaven, Jesus, who's she married to? And now all, all his followers and all the people with him are like, wow, that's a good question. Jesus, who, who would she be married to? You see, and the whole point of the Sadducees' question was, was to try to prove that there was no afterlife. They didn't believe in an afterlife. That's why they were sad, you see. Aren't you guys glad you came to church? You learned some amazing things. You should just be, you should write that one down. You see, the Sadducees believed that mankind, womankind, that everyone who was alive, they lived to bring pleasure to God. And once they died, their life was over. There was no more existence. They fulfilled their purpose and brought pleasure to God. There was no afterlife. Even though Moses talked about an afterlife, even though Jesus talked about an afterlife, their whole purpose was to trip Jesus up that there was no afterlife. Jesus, he goes back to, the old, to their, their law, their prophets, the Old Testament. He skips right over Moses, goes back to Abraham, and he trips these guys up by looking at a, a tense, <coughs> excuse me, the tense of a verb. They're totally bewildered, totally embarrassed. They go running back to their masters again. And the crowd goes wild. The crowd loved it. Anytime Jesus would embarrass the hypocrites, would make them look like the fools that they were, they they just loved it. Here's what the text actually says. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees then got together. Like, they're ready to reload. All right, we tried once, we failed. Sadducees, you know, your guy tried. That was the stupidest question in the world. They failed. We're ready. We got another guy primed. He's ready. He's loaded. They send another guy in. This guy comes in, and this guy's a lawyer, right? He's a debater. We we got it. You're you're like cream of the crop. Here's the question. Ask, same thing Jesus teaches. Q&A. This guy stands up and asks Jesus a question, but it's a question that you're very familiar with. If you spend any time in church, you're very familiar with this. He asked Jesus this question. One of them stands up, an expert in the law, tests him. His intentions aren't there to learn. His intentions are there to follow Jesus. His intentions are there to test Jesus and trip him up. And they test him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Oh, that's a big one. There's a lot of of law. There's a lot of commands. There's 613. How do I choose? You see, in, in this culture, everyone knew the answer. There was the standard stock theological answer to this question. Everyone knew what was coming. Everyone knew the answer. And like a good Jewish boy, Jesus begins to answer the way that everyone expects, the way that this Pharisee even expects. You see, this wasn't the question he was there to ask. This was a setup. 
And there was another question prime that once Jesus answered, he was ready to go with another question, with another zinger to trip Jesus up. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Everybody's like, oh, I know this. You know this. With all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And now the lawyer's thinking, I got him. I'm ready. And he's just about to j- jump in with this question. And Jesus says, and. He's like, oh, don't do this. Don't say, every time you say and, you just ruin my plan. Don't say and. Just, just let me ask the question. And. And. The second is like it. Jesus, there's no second. There, there was no second. The second is like it, he says. Love your neighbor as yourself. The second is equal to. The second is, isn't second in, in form of greatness. It's second in sequence. It, it, it is just as important. This is the first, and this is the second, and these are the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. No point in history before this has anyone ever joined this verse from Deuteronomy and this verse from Leviticus together to prove this point. No one has ever done it before, and they're just kind of blown away. What do you mean Like there's a second to this? There was never a second. We were never concerned about our standing with people. Up until this point, we were only concerned about our standing with God. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm here to introduce something brand new. For years and years and years, you've only been concerned about, about kind of your, your, your vertical position. Am I good with God? If I'm good with God, I'm good, and who cares what I do to anyone else? He said, no, I'm introducing something new. I'm taking it from the vertical to the horizontal. You see, for years up until this point, somebody could say, see, I'm good with God. I go to church, I pray, I confess my sins, I serve, I teach Sunday school, I'm good. Yeah, but did you see the way you talk to your kids? Yeah, but I'm good with God. But how do you treat your wife? But I'm good with God. See, as long as I'm good here, I'm good. And Jesus said, no, no longer. You want to know how you're good this way? Are you good this way? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here's how I want you to do it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, I don't like that. Jesus, that sounds that sounds hard. This is new. This was first century religion, though. As a matter of fact, let's be honest, this is religion in every century. This is some churches today. We're more concerned, am I okay with God? And who cares how I am with anyone else? Jesus says, all the law and the prophets. Or essentially, guys, your Bible. I know you don't have a Bible. The Bible's not put together. It won't be put together for hundreds of years. All the law and the prophets, all of your sacred texts, all of your scripture, what we would call the old covenant, everything from Genesis to Malachi, everything that we would consider old covenant to them was the covenant. It was the law. It was the scriptures. All of it, he says, hang on these two commandments. And if Jesus had technology and a screen like we have, he would say this, love God and love your neighbor and everything else. Everything else is underneath it. Everything else hangs on this. Or essentially what he's saying is this. He's saying that, that if you're reading through Isaiah and you get a little confused, you get a little overwhelmed, come back to this. Love God and love your neighbor. If you're reading Daniel and, and, and you don't understand what's going on, come back to this. Love God and love your neighbor. Everything hangs on this. 
Everything else hangs with us. Everything else is explanation. Everything else is history. It all comes back to this. This is the, the, the governing ethic. This two, these two commands, loving God and loving your neighbor, it covers everything else. It's almost like Jesus is saying love for God is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by love for others. And in this moment, Jesus took 613 laws and he narrows it down to two. But he wasn't through yet. You see, the problem at this point was for a first century Jewish person to ask the question, okay, Jesus, but who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? In that passage of scripture that Jesus took from Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself, it actually gives a definition for your neighbor. And the definition for neighbor in this text was another Jewish person. So, so for a Jewish person, all I have to love is another Jew? That's it? Jesus, who's our neighbor? Jesus takes it a step further. Many weeks later, he's in a similar situation. Another lawyer comes, asks him the similar question. Jesus gives a similar answer. This time, though, he goes a step further. and He defines who neighbor is. He tells us the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You've heard that story before. He says, you want to know who your neighbor is? has nothing to do with nationality, has nothing to do with race, has nothing to do with proximity. Your neighbor is anyone you know who has a need that you can meet, whether you like them or not, whether they like you or not. If you know anyone who has a need and you can meet it, that's your neighbor. That's who you serve. That's who you love. Jesus, I don't know that I like that. And it's kind of like Jesus upped the ante again and said, love for God is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by love for those who are nothing like you and who may not even like you. And this was so new, they couldn't wrap their minds around it. Even the disciples who trekked with Jesus, who followed Jesus, who throughout his entire lifetime, Jesus was leaving breadcrumbs and leaving signs and signals, pointing to this new thing, pointing in this direction. They couldn't wrap their minds around what he was trying to say even the people who were closest, even the people who should have known the best. Then Jesus chose the Passover meal. And at Passover, he makes his official reveal of the new covenant. You remember Moses. Don't remember Moses. Remember me. You remember <coughs> the blood of the lamb. Don't remember the blood of the lamb. Remember my blood that seals this new covenant. He's turning the whole thing around and these guys are just completely overwhelmed. This brand new covenant not between God and the nation, but between God and all of mankind forever. They didn't understand it at this time, but Jesus, he goes even a step further. Jesus not only takes on the role of covenant maker, because Moses, he was the covenant maker. He was the one who, who brought that covenant between God and the nation of Israel. He steps into the role of a lawgiver. And this new covenant, like the one he had just replaced, would have its own set of thou shalt and thou shalt nots but not 600 of them, not even two of them. This is one of the most important moments in Jesus' life. And it's one of the moments that the church has missed for years. We just kind of read and we gloss over. We don't pay specific attention to it. But I believe with all of my heart that this is the one thing that if the church could get right, it could change and would change everything. Jesus says this, gentlemen, I give you a new command. And again, you know what they're thinking. Who are you to give us a command? Only God gives commands. Only God gives laws. Even Moses, the covenant bringer, he didn't bring commands. He, he, he brought the commands from God. He didn't make them himself. Jesus, who are you to give us a new law? 
I, I think I'm putting the pieces together, and I've got to be honest, I'm a little disturbed. It's almost like you're saying you're God. It's almost like you're saying somehow you stand between us and God, and you're bringing us new things from God, like, like somehow you're replacing Moses. This is a little bit disturbing, but i got to be honest. You took 600 laws, and you brought them down to two, which is, you know, 600 was a lot. We thought 10 was a lot. 600 was a lot. You brought them down to two. I guess one more. Like, what's it going to hurt? You see, what they didn't realize, what they didn't pick up on was Jesus wasn't here to add to. He was here to take away from. He was here to reduce it even further. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. Which his disciples probably laughed like, that's not new. You've been told that for years, Jesus. They've been saying that for thousands of years. He said, I'm not done. There's a stipulation. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And at this moment, I'm guessing he went around the room and he began to use illustrations. Do you remember? Do you remember when I met you? Now, they didn't write this down. And I'm guessing they probably didn't write it down because it could have been too embarrassing. But, but I just imagine Jesus looking across his disciples and saying, Hey, Matthew, <coughs> you remember where you were when I found you? Yeah, Jesus, I, I, I remember. What were you doing? Matthew kind of gets embarrassed and backs up into the crowd. No, no, Matthew, I want you to say it out loud. What were you doing when I found you? I was a tax collector. You remember what I said when I found you? Yeah, Jesus. You asked me to become one of your closest followers. At this point, Peter speaks up. Yeah, I remember you asking him that. We were totally, like, why would you do that, Jesus? We don't want Matthew. He's, he's an embarrassment. This tax collector, he's the worst. And you asked him to follow. Like, Jesus, I remember that. That was awful. Matthew, do, do you remember what I said after I asked you to follow me? I do. What'd we do? You asked me to go to my house and have a party. And then you asked me to invite all of my friends to the party. He said, yep. That same kind of grace and that same kind of mercy I showed you, I want you to show to every person you meet from this day forward. Hey, Nathaniel, do you remember when I met you? Nathaniel said, well, it couldn't be as bad as Matthew. Like, yeah, I remember when you found me. What were you doing, Nathaniel? Do you remember when I found you all the bad things you had said about me and my family and my friends and my hometown? Nazareth. What good could come from Nazareth? I imagine Nathaniel shrieks back, yeah, I, I remember. I wish I didn't. You remember what I said when I found you? Yes, sir. You asked me to become one of your closest followers. Nathaniel, that's the same grace and mercy, I expect you to show every person you meet from this day forward, whether you like them or not. Hey, hey, guys, now it looks at the whole disciples. Do you remember that time where I taught that message on the hill and you just, you were completely embarrassed? I admit it wasn't my best day. I used an illustration. It completely like drove the crowd wild. I talked about, you know, eating my body and drinking my blood and the crowd couldn't roll with it so much so that they began to leave. Now, I, I know you, you tried to pay real close attention. You were looking at me, but I saw your glances as you looked over your shoulder as the crowds began to leave and we were losing thousands and thousands of people. You remember that day? Like, yeah, I remember the day. You remember when I looked at you and I said, do you want to leave too? And you're smart enough at this point. You were smart enough not to lie to me because you know that I know when everyone's lying. But I never called you out on it. And as much as in that moment that you wanted to unfollow me, I never unfollowed you. From this day forward, guys, I expect you to show the same grace and the same mercy and the same love to every single person you meet. 
And guys, this was the Passover meal. Jesus hadn't even done his thing yet. I imagine he's thinking, guys, just wait. Two, three, four days from now. You think you know love? You haven't even seen love. Just wait to see what I'm about to do. I'm going to redefine love like you've never seen it defined before. And the love that I do for you, that I give you, that I'm willing to lay down my life for you, you show that same love to every other person you meet from this day forward. To love other people the way that I love you and to love them the way I'm about to love you. By this one thing, by this one thing, not two things, not 613 things, by this one thing, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. Jesus, I know that whole thing about love God, you know, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yep. I know about love your neighbors yourself. Yep. By this one thing. See, because no one can see how you love God. It's that, that personal relationship and no one knows. Here's how they're going to know. That if you love God, your love for God translates into love for other people. And this is how they'll know that you're my disciple. It's how they'll know that you follow me and that you love God, by how you love one another. That's the thing. That's the overarching ethic. That's the one rule that I want you to remember. When I go away, you don't have to remember 613. You guys aren't that bright. You don't have to remember two. Some of you aren't even that smart. Remember one. This is how they'll know that you're my follower. It's how you, they'll know that you love God by how well you love one another. And thinking, man, this is, this is extraordinary. right? It, compared to their old life, their old system, this is far, far, far less demanding. But it is far, far more demanding. It is far less complicated and far more demanding. 613 to 1. But that one covers a whole lot. I'm going to try to illustrate this for you the, the best I can and, and appreciate if this stays in the room, although it probably won't. This is just the, the, the truth, though, that if you were to give me a list of rules, <clears throat> I could find a loophole in almost any list you give me. And the truth is, the bigger the list you give me, the more loopholes I can find. Now, if you're a parent, you understand this. right? You, you, you tell your kids to clean your room, and they say, yeah, but you didn't say how to clean my room. I just put, you know... My closet, my bed. <clears throat> you, Dad, you told me to be home, but you didn't say which home. You, to, you, you told me to be home at a certain time, but it wasn't exactly spelled out. I was like, you, you know, I was close. I was in the hour range. Like, I, you know, I'm 10, I'm 12, I'm 16. You got to spell it out for me. Dad, from now on, Mom, from now on, if you're going to give me a rule, you need to spell it out completely. The more rules you have, the more loopholes you can find. I, I, I'm not a great rule follower. That's why I, I made two. I figured two's easy enough. You can't escape. There's not a lot of room in there. Here's, here's the thing I don't want to get out, though. But if you were to give me the Bible, I could find you a loophole for almost anything you want to do, especially if I can use the first part. Because we look at the first part, and some of the songs we sing in church were written by men who did some of the worst things in history but had hearts for God. You see, with a lot of rules, there's a lot of room and there's a lot of cracks. But there's not a lot of rules with that, is there? With that one command... There's not a lot of loopholes in there. There might be loopholes in romance. There might be loopholes in some kind of love. But there's not loopholes in love your neighbor as I love you. That, that's, that's it. 
That's the rule. That, that's the law. That's the command. And as a pastor, I, I get asked this all the time, and, and you may have even thought this. But Jim, is, is there anything wrong with, 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 with this over here, with A? I know the Bible set, says this, but it really doesn't apply to my situation. Like all of, all of my surrounding scenarios, it doesn't, it doesn't hit all of that. So, so that's more like B, and I'm really concerned about doing A. So if there's nothing wrong with, with doing A, like if it's not specifically listed in my scenario, in my way, then I'm good to go and do what I want to do. I know where that comes from, right? We have this heart of, of, of is, is dot, dot, dot wrong, fill in the blank with whatever you want? Because I, I don't want to offend God, and if God specifically said it, then I'll, I'll stay away from it. But did he specifically say it? And that's all from a place of, of, of really like, what am I allowed to get away with? Right? Parents, we know that. How far can I go? And then you come back to that rule. That covers a lot. As a matter of fact, I think it covers everything. You see, Jesus entered into, into a century of first century followers that were full of professional loophole makers. That was the Pharisees. Their whole existence was to create loopholes for themselves and put pressure back on the people. And it drove people away from the God that created them, the God that loved them, the God that had a purpose for them. And Jesus comes in and he makes this new covenant and he gives this new command where there is no loophole. You see, for, for so many of us, it, 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 we get to a place where I'm really not sure what to believe. I'm, I'm really not sure all the time of who I should believe, but I almost always know what love requires of me. In the old covenant, the question was this, what does the law require of me? And then we moved into the New Testament, and for years the church has been asking the wrong question. We've been saying, what does the Bible require of me? But Jesus instituted this new covenant with a new command. The question, Jesus' question is this. What does love require of me? Love required Jesus to go to the cross, to give up his life. What does love require of you? And here's something that all of our middle schoolers, all of our high schoolers, if you're in college, this is something you, you, can't, you can't miss. And for years, we, we've missed this as a church. As, as pastors, we've missed this for years. But you can't miss this, that every New Testament imperative, and an imperative is like a command, every New Testament imperative ever given is simply an application of Jesus' new covenant command. Or in, in other words, the New Testament is not full of a bunch of rules. The New Testament is full of a rule, to love just as I have loved you. And everything else is application of that rule. Everything else is explanation of that rule. That the entire Bible, 66 books, Old Testament, New Testament, it all hangs underneath this one rule that covers everything. Love everyone else as I have loved you. By this, they will know that you love me. They will know that you love God. They will know that you're a follower by how you love others. Everything else is application. Everything else is explanation. And for years, we've missed it. For years, I've missed it. For years, the church has missed it. But you know who's never missed it? You know who got it from the very beginning? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul gives us these incredible illustrations, all illustrations of this one verse. Love, just as I have loved you. Here's a few of them. He says this in, to the church in Ephesus. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Paul, why should I forgive? Should I forgive because you say forgive? No. Should I forgive because the Bible says forgive? Paul's like, what's a Bible? I don't know what a Bible is. I don't know. I don't have a Bible. Why should I forgive then? Because you tell me to forgive, Paul? No. No, no. Let me finish. 
Forgive one another just as Christ or just as God forgave you in Christ. Why do we forgive? Because God forgave you through Jesus. All right, Paul. All right. Why do I need to be patient? Why do I need to be kind? Why should I be patient with her? Do you see what she does to get under my skin? Why should I be kind to him? Do you see how rude and how mean he is to me? Why should I do this, Paul? Give me the verse. Paul again said, what's a verse? I don't have a verse. I have a letter. Here. Here's why you should be patient. Because love is patient. And love is kind. And those are our marching orders to love. And then he says this, love doesn't dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. And, and that right there is the New Testament sexual ethic. Because as Jesus followers, we don't do anything to dishonor other people. We don't do anything to create moments of regret for other people. That's why we don't do that. Because we honor him. And because we honor her. And we honor his children. And we honor her future marriage. And we honor their future relationship. As a Jesus follower, we never create moments of regret. We never create moments where people look back in their life and think, Oh God, I wish I didn't. We do not dishonor. Love does not dishonor. Love does not seek its own self-interests. You don't need a verse. Love is a mandate. Love is a command. There's no wiggle room in that. There's no space in that. There's no loophole in that. There may be a loophole in romance. There's no loophole in that. Paul goes on. He says this, in your relationships with one another. Thinking, Great, finally, Paul. We need like eight weeks in this. Just give us like an eight-week series on relationships. And Paul's like, you don't need an eight-week series. You need this in your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You don't need a series. You need a three-by-five note card. Write that down and put it everywhere you look. You want to know how to improve your relationships? Here it is. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus had for you. When he is ticking you off and he is annoying you and you're ready to throw the pot and pan at him, Remember this. Oh, that's right. I've got, to, I've got to love him. I've got to think about him the same way Christ Jesus thinks about me. When she or your kids get you so mad that you're ready to pop like a top and do something you regret, remember this. No, I've got, I got to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus had for me. That while I was even a sinner, while I was in rebellion, while I was moving away from him, he loved me so much that he gave up his life for me. By this one thing, they will know that you are my follower, how you love one another. And I could go on and on and on and on, illustration after illustration, all saying the same thing. So I have loved you, so you must love one another. That is the one commandment. That's the fine print in the new covenant. That is the terms and the conditions. That is the overarching ethic of Jesus' new covenant and his new command that he's leaving to his new movement, the church. And his first century followers got it. As a matter of fact, they got it so well. Their other's firstness, they're putting people above themselves, their self-sacrificing ways in this first century culture that was built on the idea of strength and power and self-service. It was appalling to them. But their movement that started as appalling very quickly became appealing. Remember us, we covered this. 
They continued to serve. They continued to put others first. They continued to think about others and love others as much as Jesus loved themselves. And what was appalling became appealing and eventually became contagious and made its way all around the world. So that thousands of years later, we're still gathering and we're still talking about the same one thing. Love everyone else the same way Jesus loved you. And if the church could get this right, it would change the world just like it did thousands of years ago. Just like it does today in churches that are known for their love. Not, I'm, I'm right with God and I don't care about anyone else. But when they are known for their love, it changes the world. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my follower. And his, his disciples, I imagine in this moment, were just thrown for a loop. I mean, they're trying to track with Jesus. I mean, imagine what that kind of night was. They come in, they sit down, they're expecting the Messiah to, to, to reign as king. They eat the Passover, but they don't really even celebrate the Passover because Jesus, he changed everything. He turned it upside down. They're not remembering Moses. They're not remembering Egypt. They're, they're, they're not even remembering the blood of the lamb. It's all about Jesus and his body being broken, but it's not broken. And his, it's being sealed in his blood, but he's not bleeding. I checked. They're, they're, just, they're totally confused. Like, I don't get this, Jesus. And then for some reason, Judas gets up and he runs away. But then Jesus, you know, he totally humiliates and embarrasses us by washing our feet. And we're just, we're trying to put these pieces together, but it's overwhelming. I can't see what's coming. And then Jesus says, hey guys, let's go pray. Let's go pray in, in our favorite spot in the garden. People are looking for us. So, so we're going to do it at night. We're going to do it on the side roads. We'll make our way over to, to Gethsemane, our favorite spot. I just need to go pray. Disciples make their way with Jesus at night through the side roads over to the garden. I imagine there's murmuring and there's confusion. I, just, I don't understand what he's talking about. Why isn't, he, why isn't he declaring himself to be the Messiah and taking over? This isn't going how I thought. Jesus says, guys, I want you to pray here for a moment. I'm going to go over and pray by myself. He goes and prays and he comes back and all of them are asleep. Because he seriously kicks them. Wake up. Come on, pray. I'm going to go back. I'm going to pray again. He goes over and prays by himself. He comes back again and they're asleep again. Imagine he's frustrated. He's like just feeling the turmoil because he knows what's coming. And the guys he loves and cares for, they're like sleeping. Like they, have, they just have no clue. All right, guys, come on, get up, get up. And in the commotion of them getting up, they see a light in the distance. And here comes Judas, his 12th follower, with hundreds of temple guards, making his way to arrest Jesus. His disciples go into a panic. And they come and they arrest Jesus and the 11 disciples, his followers, the men that this movement would, would be built on, they scatter. They take Jesus to the high priest's house, Caiaphas. And they have false witnesses there saying things that Jesus never said and talking about things that Jesus never did. Lying. And the only people that can bring truth to the situation, his followers, are nowhere to be found. They take Jesus from Caiaphas' house and they bring him to Pilate. And when they do this, the disciples know, man, it's coming to an end. It's going to an end. Because the only thing that the Pharisees couldn't do, the only punishment the Pharisees couldn't give is condemning Jesus to death. They needed Pilate for that. So they make their way to Pilate's. Jesus' disciples are scattered, scared, feeling like the end is here. And that's what we're going to pick up next week. Heavenly Father,
I thank you so much for this incredible text, for this, this incredible story, God, that is moving and emotional, and it's not God times, it feels overwhelming. But I thank you for, for this incredible truth that Jesus talked about his entire life. God, it was missed so many times, but from our side of the, of the story, looking in, God, it is so clear that he lived his life this way. That the way we would be known, the way we would be known as followers of Jesus is by how well we love each other. And not just the people we like, but the people we don't. And God, that is so hard. I pray that you'd give us the wisdom to know what to do with this. God, and the courage to apply it. Because although it is far less complicated, it is far more demanding. Be with us, Lord. And as we begin to love others the way that you love us, I pray we would see what happened exactly in the first century, God, that what seems so appalling and confusing will become appealing and will become contagious and would change our neighborhoods and our city, our state, the nation, and the world. I thank you for it, and I give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.